Welcome to Sagittarius I, issue 34, March 3307, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial. You may have noticed a pattern recently in Sagittarius I. We've been giving rather a lot of coverage to the humble SRV Scarab. This vehicle is much maligned by some on Pilots Federation forums with cries of, It spins out too easily! Or, You could knock a hole in the hull with a pebble! Even if the pebble in question is a boulder weighing the best part of a ton and sticking up a good half meter out of the ground. Still, all complaining aside, the SRV is a machine that can really reward the commander who's willing to take a bit of time to learn to drive it properly. Certainly, going from the security and size of your ship to the relative frailty of the six-legged beast can make you feel a touch vulnerable. But in the right hands, the Vodel Scarab is durable, quick, and more versatile than you might think. We've covered a few rallies and racing events for this machine recently, but this month we aim to introduce commanders to the techniques required to execute these feats. We hope in time this will quieten the protest as commanders realize they have a truly fast, robust, and altogether quite exquisitely engineered machine that should be respected, not reviled. And it might be worth considering... If the scarab is spinning out too easily, perhaps the fault doesn't lay with the vehicle, but the commander driving it? The Trouble with Marlinists Since 3300, the Empire has faced adversity on several occasions, but has usually been able to overcome these trials with its dignity intact. In the last half of 3306, this ability to cope with political turmoil, a situation the Empire is normally so well equipped to deal with, seems to have failed at the hands of a very small portion of the Empire's citizenry, the Marlinists. Independent pilots who once supported the Empire are nowhere to be seen, and it appears from the outside that the Empire has lost control of the situation. For context... Let's look at some of the recent challenges the Empire has faced. Take, for example, the various debt crises of 3301, with Senator Denton Petraeus as the lender. With relatively little fuss, Senator Petraeus seized the star systems Durius, Quisien and Themyscria, amongst others. Pilots' Federation members largely stood by and watched, these invasions being little more than news affecting others, that scrolled by on Galnet news tickers. It is suspected that these systems were set up to fail so that Petraeus had the excuse to move in and seize control. Other galactic events of the period, with commanders more directly involved, also tended to work out in the Empire's favour. The Empire scored a decisive win in the Civil War in Sorbago, with Senator Zimina Torval's forces brought to victory, largely with the help of independent commanders towards the end of 3300. We cannot forget that the Luge War of 3301, while not a war involving the Empire itself, was heavily supported by Imperial factions and their Pilots' Federation support networks. 
The Empire also prevailed in other mindshare assaults on the Federation during this period. Capafornassus, the origin of the drug onion head, had been brutally punished by a Federation campaign in late 3300, only to be saved by an Imperial corporation the following year, which then did everything in its power to rub the Federation's nose in it. Independent pilots, flying on behalf of the Empire, had been instrumental in this success. Then there was the Pegasi Pirate War, overseen by Denton Petraeus. While not an unqualified success for the Empire, it certainly prevented the piracy threat from spilling over into Imperial systems. Once again, this effort had been heavily backed by independent pilots. The Empire is not used to losing. Yet, in 3306, a group of Imperial citizens who had been largely forgotten for a thousand years caused a significant upset. The Marlinists, subscribing to Marlin Duval's original idea of a democratic republic rather than an empire, have lived within the empire largely peacefully for over a millennium. They were largely ignored by the empire at large, despite their political philosophy being significantly opposed to the empire as it has stood over the same time period. This peaceful coexistence changed dramatically and violently in the second half of 3306, when a group calling itself the Neo-Marlinist Liberation Army, NMLA, began its attacks. Without warning, numerous stations were bombed with explosives containing Thargoid-derived technology. In September 3306, the NMLA assassinated the reclusive Harold Duval, father of the People's Princess, Ashling Duval, and less than a month later, they attempted to take the life of Hadrian Duval, leader of Nova Imperium. Before the flames on the bombed stations had even gone out, the Imperial Navy began its counterattack, the swiftness and brutality of retribution against ordinary Marlinists suggesting that the Empire had plans drawn up well in advance to deal with this eventuality. The Marlinists, left with few other options, fled the Empire. Meanwhile, the Empire sought to persecute anyone who had aided the NMLA in their attacks, and the finger of blame quickly pointed to the engineer Liz Ryder, as the Empire accused her of having supplied the NMLA with their explosives. An outside observer might have expected the might of the Empire to have swiftly crushed Ryder, especially in the light of its past successes. To the undoubted surprise and shock of the Empire, Pilots' Federation members instead rallied around the Engineer, and the Empire suffered a crushing defeat. In the battle that ensued, Eurybia Blue Mafia received just over seven times as much support from independent pilots as the Keltim Empire League. If this wasn't enough, the Empire once again received a drubbing in LTT 1935, this time from independent pilots who'd taken the side of the Federation. The Empire was seeking to defeat the LTT 1935 Confederacy, a Federal-aligned faction that it had accused of concealing secret bomb factories for the NMLA. Independent pilots flocked to the Federation's defence rather than the Imperial offensive, with the contributions to the Federal side being some four times larger than the Empire's. It hasn't all been bad news for the Imperial Navy. Independent pilots did rally to the Empire's cause during the conflict in Equada in October 3306, but the Empire's victory there was somewhat lacklustre. It was simply not a victory on the scale of the thrashing it received in LTT 1935 and in Eurybia. These events all led to the present day, 
with the Empire impotently demanding that the Marlinists be returned to them, though it is clear that no such thing will happen. Why is the Empire now losing to a once obscure section of its society? Why has support not been forthcoming from Pilot Federation members, when it's clearly been given many times in the past? Why have independent pilots supported a crime-ridden mafia faction? There are many possible theories, but in the case of Liz Ryder, it's likely self-interest, coupled with a lack of a fog of war that allowed the humble engineer to inflict such a humiliating defeat. The engineer could offer a reward that the Empire had no hope of matching. The Pilots' Federation is always very keen to point out that its members are not tied to a faction, that they are genuinely independent. While many claim to belong to the Empire, Federation or the Alliance, or perhaps an independent faction, when push comes to shove, a Pilots' Federation member is quite willing to abandon all pretense of loyalty if they get the merest sniff of some equipment that will make their ship better than everyone else's. One only needs to travel to a conflict on Imperial turf to see that's true. How many notionally Imperial commanders are flying Federal corvettes? If they were truly loyal to the Empire, would they have spent so much time doing the Federation's bidding as to reach the heady rank required to obtain such a ship? In this war, Liz Ryder was offering a specially engineered missile rack, unobtainable by other means, to her supporters. The Empire's offer? Merely that Ryder's engineering shop would remain open, except now controlled by the Empire. While Liz Ryder's offer to her supporters wasn't dramatic, it was enough to put a finger on the balance, as plenty of commanders wanted something exclusive. Participants only had to reach the top 75% of commanders fighting what would be a fairly short war, an achievement that most commanders would not find a challenge. We can then come to the second factor. The lack of the fog of war. Well, the fog of war the lack of knowledge of what the other side is doing and how it's getting on, would normally be an impediment to everyone who is fighting. Having perfect knowledge of the other side's progress can easily be demoralising if they get an early lead and you can see it. Commanders could quite clearly see how quickly combat bonds were being turned in for the Eurybia Blue Mafia, and a dyed-in-the-wool Imperial commander might decide after all that they're not quite so loyal as to waste their time on what is obviously a lost cause. To that end, Imperial supporters might simply not bother to turn up, especially if it's more profitable to spend their time supporting their own Imperial-aligned minor faction. As such, all the Imperial commanders concluding that we can't win this one, on the first day of fighting, made it a self-fulfilling prophecy. In the opinion of this writer, while it would have been difficult for the Empire to win this war, if every Imperial Alliance commander had ignored the early lead and had decided it was a cause worth fighting for, the Empire could have prevailed, or at the very least they might not have suffered quite such an ignominious defeat. The causes of the Empire's second humiliation in LTT 1935 are not so easy to discern. This time, there was no engineer offering a special exclusive reward. In fact, both sides were offering identical rewards. A significant boost in military rank. The top 75% of commanders would be promoted one rank. The top 25% two ranks. And the top 
10 contributors would be elevated to the highest military rank. In the past, commanders would point out that grinding Federation rank, as it is colloquially known, was generally harder than doing the same for the Empire. This would have likely incentivized commanders to side with the Federation, so that they could purchase the corvette they have always wanted. But by late 3306 this wasn't really true anymore. A perfectly good Federation rank milk run from XVA to Canopus was, was by then well known, and we need only look at the traffic report in XVA to see the popularity of this route to Rear Admiral. This leads to a third factor. The political leanings of the typical Pilots' Federation member. As Pilots' Federation members it's easy to forget the level of privilege and freedom we enjoy regardless of on which side your loyalties fall. If you were to take a commander loyal to the Empire, one loyal to the Federation, one loyal to the Alliance, and put them together, you would quickly find they have much more in common than their declared superpower loyalties would suggest. Commanders, by and large, are liberal. Not in the sense of the Federation Liberal Party, but the strict dictionary meaning of the word liberal. Willing to respect or accept behaviour or opinions different from one's own open to new ideas. Authoritarianism is anathema to a large proportion of the Pilots' Federation members. As such, the brutal crackdown on ordinary Marlinists, who at no point had any involvement in the violence of the NMLA, was something that rankled. It was something that few Pilot Federation members could support, including those who'd pledged loyalty to the Empire. Some did support the Empire in its battle in LTT 1935, but not in great numbers. The outpouring of support for the refugees that followed also demonstrates that the Empire's actions against the Marlinists have put the Empire on the back foot in this matter. It is likely to only get worse for the Empire, who by now must be fervently wanting to wash their hands of the entire affair. The recent revelations of an alleged secret Imperial torture facility used to hold NMLA suspects is at the time of writing being hotly denied by the Empire. If the allegations turn out to be true, the Empire may find itself further shunned by all but the most loyal Pilot Federation members. The Empire would do well to learn a lesson from one of the classics written about another Empire far away and long ago and heed the immortal line, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. An advanced SRV driving lesson. The Scarab SRV, designed and manufactured by Vodal, a subsidiary of Core Dynamics, is a rugged and reliable ground-based vehicle. While it was initially designed for surface reconnaissance and exploration purposes, many clever commanders have developed techniques for operating this vehicle at extreme speeds, primarily through the use of the Scarab's two bi-directional boosters and accompanying wheel-mounted attitude thrusters. At first glance, the Scarab appears to be relatively simple in terms of construction and therefore use, but that couldn't be further from reality. With its array of thrusters and uniquely designed suspension, consisting of six independent armatures, the Scarab SRV truly is an example of creative engineering. Even the Scarab's foldable design is intriguing, to say the least. 
Mastering this vehicle requires development of several different skill sets, all unique to its operation. Unruly and quick to spin out at first, the Scare requires a significant amount of seat time to truly learn to pilot. However, commanders with a fortitude to press on will eventually find the vehicle to be predictable, consistent, and an absolute joy to pilot. The first thing we'll cover is fuel conservation and pit management. Commanders who are new to piloting the Scarab should note that fuel consumption can be lowered dramatically by disabling specific modules in the system panel. SRV racers will typically disable the wave scanner, dual repeater, shield generator, and even the power distributor to save fuel, especially during a long rally race. Note that pit placement will be saved and locked in place when the power distributor is disabled, while still providing the same capacitor amounts and increased speed or shield strength. For general resource collecting, exploration, or planetside combat, commanders can re-enable certain desired or necessary modules as needed. A standard PIP spread for racing would consist of two PIPs in shields, four PIPs in engines, and zero in weapons. This should be the standard go-to for most commanders unless you are actively engaging in vehicle combat or using the dual repeater for resource collection. Much as with ships, full PIPs and engines will not only give the Scarab increased boost capacity, but will also raise the top driving speed of the vehicle. Moving on to ground driving. First and foremost, drive assist should be avoided in nearly all situations, except for specific circumstances where a driving cruise control is desired. Virtually all of the advanced tactics for piloting the Scarab are either hindered or outright impossible while using drive assist, as at high speeds it will actually cause inadvertent braking to occur. Newer pilots might compare drive assist to flight assist in a ship. But while many advanced flight maneuvers can still be completed in a ship with flight assist on, the same cannot be said for a Scarab with drive assist on. Steering in the Scarab SRV is actually done with six wheels, four in the front and two in the back, which turn in the inverse of steering input. This, along with varying gravities and natural differentiation in surface grip across planetary surfaces, can cause the SRV to feel skittish while turning and even slide out. Though it may seem counterintuitive, the best way to handle this is actually by keeping the throttle maxed out at all times and using the handbrake to slow and even stop, all while keeping the throttle maxed. This tactic can be used to negotiate rough terrain, navigate within the tight confines of a settlement or structure, and even to correct and straighten the scarab when a slide out begins to happen. For tight but high speed areas, the handbrake should be feathered to keep a desired level of deceleration and turn correction. There are certain limits to ground driving. Flying, or mixture of flying with driving, is a tactic commonly used by Scarab pilots to reach speeds much higher than the 38 meters per second top driving speed of the vehicle. Depending on both the gravity and the planet's terrain, skilled commanders can reach speeds well above 100 meters per second and even up into the several hundred meters per second range. To accomplish this feat, a pilot will accelerate to a point near the max driving speed and then lift off the ground, typically using a small mound or bump on the planet's surface. Then, the pilot will pitch forward, lowering the nose of the scarab, and will engage the boosters. Due to the negative angle of the scarab and the consequent rotation of thrusters, this will cause the boosters to propel the scarab forward and increase horizontal speed. Depending on whether a commander is looking for more altitude or more forward speed, the pitch angle can be adjusted all the way down to a negative 90 degree point, after which the thruster output will flip, causing the scarab to decelerate rather than accelerate. 
Upon nearing contact with the ground, the pilot can then look for another mound or bump in the surface and land with the front wheels first to propel the scarab back above the surface, where more downward pitched boosting can be applied. Over the course of several consecutive bounces, speed and altitude can build up even more. This strategy is easiest to master on low gravity planets, but still has effective use cases on higher gravity planets, where boost capacity, efficiency, and altitude are both limited. To the surprise of many, the scarab can also scale vertical walls. Vertical climbing or wall climbing with the scarab has become exceedingly popular in recent months. Skilled pilots have made their way up cliff sides, buildings, and towers in spectacular fashion. Surprisingly, the tactic used to accomplish these feats is not as difficult as one might expect. By propelling oneself up against a vertical surface with the nose of the SRV pointing up, one would think that after a short skid, the vehicle would fall back to the ground. The trick is in proper use of the thrusters. Upon reaching the 90 degree point and going slightly past it, the scarab pointing straight up in the air, the thrusters will begin to fire in the opposite direction. This in the racing community is called inverted boosting. With the throttle pinned, a pilot can use this inverted boosting tactic to repeatedly propel the scarab against the vertical surface, gaining artificial traction. Over a series of gentle bounces, this allows the pilot to continuously ascend. Note that this maneuver is easiest to accomplish on low gravity planets. It, however, is still completely usable on planets even above 1G, the limitation here being primarily thrust efficiency. The scarab isn't just a climber. Long free falls from mountaintops and even base jumps from planetary base structures have also become very popular in recent months. The main goal of a long-distance descent is typically to reduce the amount of damage the scarab's hull takes, or even to prevent damage entirely, in addition to retaining control of the vehicle. Much like with flyving, the trick is the landing or bounce. The pilot must aim to land with the front wheels of the scarab shortly before the rest of the wheels impact. By doing so, the six-armature suspension of the vehicle is able to soak up much of the impact. If a pilot wishes to stop the scarab as quickly as possible post-descent, a full-throttle handbrake hold upon landing is suggested. This will, if executed properly, bring the scarab to a near-immediate stop upon landing, with very little or no hull damage. This tactic can even be executed at very high downward speeds without any counter-descent thrust. If vertical climbs and descents aren't enough to entertain, a wide variety of trick maneuvers exist for the scarab, for those pilots who wish to add a bit of flash to their driving. We could spend days covering the wide range of impressive maneuvers we've seen, but for the sake of time, we will cover only a few. One of the most common trick maneuvers we see is the in-place barrel roll. This is simple enough to execute that even a novice scarab pilot can quickly pick it up. Firstly, a pilot will expend a small amount of their engine capacitor to raise the SRV above the surface. Then one can begin rolling either left or right using wheel thrusters, all the while keeping pitch level. It is advised to use short bursts of boost capacity only when the scarab is facing upright or upside down. This will keep the SRV in roughly the same position while allowing the roll to build constant speed. Depending on the level of gravity, boost capacity will begin to drain and the scarab will begin to descend to the surface. To stop the roll and land on the wheels, it is suggested that the pilot begins counter-rolling while the scarab is inverted, with the canopy facing the ground. This will allow time for thrusters to correct the roll and the scarab will land smoothly, wheels first, back on the surface. 
The same maneuver can be replicated in the same way for in-place backflips and front flips. Simply by keeping the scarab level against the horizon indicator and performing the same rotation using pitch control. This works out identically to the barrel roll and allows the SRV to, once again, land comfortably on its wheels. Lastly, we'll cover the flat 360 spin. This trick maneuver is contradictory to the correctional programming of the SRV's wheel thrusters. While the SRV itself does not have yaw control, the thrusters are programmed to counter a flat spin in the air to help the pilot retain control of the vehicle. In practice, there is a programmed rebound and compression of the thrusters that automatically brings the scarab to a non-spin on the Z-axis while airborne. To counter this and actually perform a flat 360 or greater airborne turn, a pilot can find a smooth flat ramp, typically on soil or ice, to propel them into the maneuver. Approaching at a high speed, typically while flying, and then using the surface of the ramp to turn into a slide, either left or right, will allow the scarab to retain a flat spin while airborne as the thrusters attempt to counter and correct. This trick, while difficult to accomplish, can make for not only fun and exciting footage, but a delightful piloting experience. To conclude, the Scarab SRV, while often used for mundane tasks, is an absolute delight to operate once a pilot has attained the necessary skills to take advantage of its many strengths and quirks. For the daring commander who is looking for a new challenge, we at Sagittarius I highly recommend giving the Scarab a try in earnest. Those who are willing to tame this mechanical beast will find themselves rewarded with the utmost enjoyment and thrill. A hard look at hard points. Plasma accelerators. A vaporizing beam, a surging strike, a devastating slug. The capital class version of this weapon fires relatively slow shots, but being unstoppable, they have incredible raw damage output. Enough to bombard cities from orbit, but with precision almost comparable to that of the railgun. This superheated plasma weapon makes a statement before the first shot has been fired. With a weapon like this, you don't need warning shots. While the ship-mounted version doesn't strike much fear into a hostile population's hearts, or blind them with an ionized beam cutting through the atmosphere, it has its own level of destruction. Firing slugs at 875 meters per second, plasma accelerators aren't for novice combat pilots. To use this weapon to its full potential, a commander needs to be better at predicting a target's vector than even their ship could be. The smaller the target, the harder it is to hit, but the easier it is to destroy. Speaking of small targets, plasma accelerators aren't even available for class 1 slots. Not only are they borderline unwieldy, but expensive and power hungry too. That makes it all the more rewarding to use them. Knowing that not many commanders will even try to use these in live combat makes 54.3 damage per shot feel much more deadly. PAs, like railguns, completely ignore shield resistances and armor hardness. As it is a thermal attack, not only are shields very susceptible, but all of the plasma's heat is transferred into the target ship. These weapons satisfy both the conservation of mass energy and combat pilots' bloodlust. The price? Class 2 plasma accelerators have a thermal load of 15.6, drawing 1.43 megawatts of power. But can you say that's too much for a weapon dealing three damage types with a single shot? Without engineering, they already stack up very well in the weapons lineup, being a close sibling to the railgun. They are much slower, but the 60% absolute damage makes up for the drawbacks as you rise in class. 
The Class 4 beasts consume 2.63 megawatts of power, but deliver 125 damage per shot across shields and hull equally. With engineering, the plasma weapon not only fires another state of matter, it gives the ability to state matters between life and death. They are one of the few weapons where rapid fire modification can be worthwhile, doubling the rate of fire from 3 shots per 10 seconds to 6, reducing the reload time by 4 seconds, and decreasing distributor draw by 35%. It does introduce a bit of jitter, but as an expert pilot will be at close range to avoid the 2km damage falloff, that makes little difference. The slug can even reach speeds of 1.75km per second with focused engineering a significant fraction of the railgun's velocity. Range will also double, damage falloff occurring at 4km now. Long range engineering does do a bit better in that regard, but the 15% increase in thermal load and 30% increase in mass make most use cases less practical, so it's not widely recommended. Regular listeners will know that the sturdy engineering option should be avoided. A pilot using PAs should be skilled enough to evade most enemy fire, and well enough armoured to absorb moderate damage anyway. As with the railgun, close shot convergence and large capacitors are optimal for using PAs effectively for primary damage. The Crate Mark II, Fertilance, and the Alliance combat ships are some of the most suitable platforms. Though these are all medium size, expert pilots can use PAs in a small ship if they engineer their modules right. The primary objectives are to have a fast recharge or high capacity weapons distributor, class two or larger hardpoints, high maneuverability, and a secondary weapon type that uses little power. Combining the plasma accelerator with a weapon like the railgun, while brutal, will require more skill to utilize effectively as the average rate of fire will be limited. This isn't entirely unrecommended, but do beware power constraints when trying to wield this combination. Larger ships can also use railguns, as there is a class 4 variant, but it will prove tricky against smaller targets due to the reduced turning speed of the larger ships. As with the railgun, the plasma slug modification is a great choice of experimental effect. It uses 0.011 tonnes of fuel per reload, each reload being 5 shots. Another honourable mention, which is not available on any other type of weapon, is the target lock breaker effect. Upon impact, the target's tracking systems will malfunction and requiring them to lock on again. The effect does have a 5 second cooldown, but if you hit pretty much every shot, they'll probably be near death by then. It is worth discussing effective use of the PA in more detail, as this is just as important as the choice of engineering. There is a definite learning curve, but also a plentiful supply of strategy and tactics. The Plasma Accelerator is a weapon of opportunity. It uses a lot of power, so budgeting a distributor is necessary, but very doable and aids in heat management. As with railguns, it is easiest to land a shot from behind the target, preferably where a lot of surface area is visible. A positive or negative angle of attack combined with vertical thrust usage can give you the upper hand and the ability to land more shots before your target can break off. Aiming slightly above the center, so the reticle is in the lower half of the fixed aiming circle, while close to a ship can also help land shots due to the splash effect of the plasma ball projectile when just over one kilometer from a target. This splash damage is also excellent for targeting sub-modules and the 100% armor penetration aids in destroying them quickly, with less accuracy needed than with a railgun. Another way to strike with this weapon is when a target is boost turning. When a target boosts to change vector quickly, there is necessarily a point where its relative velocity drops to near zero before accelerating away again, 
This is your opportunity to land an easy shot. Avoid firing energy weapons like lasers simultaneously with your PAs, as distributed draw will be much greater than when they are fired separately. Also, when firing at close range, the easiest tactic for new PA users, remain mindful of your hardpoint's location relative to your cockpit and the enemy. The Plasma Accelerator is a brutal, devastating weapon, with the highest raw damage value of any weapon type and no mercy against whatever they hit, be it shields, hull, they are no minor threat. At the same time, they are incredibly expensive and have a very steep learning curve due to the slow shot speed when not engineered, but many would argue it is completely worth it. Many will try to use this weapon, but few will succeed, and even fewer can master it. Those few should be avoided at all costs if you aren't one of them. Poem in praise of Flight Assist. Commanders know no greater threat than limits of our minds. Our evolved brains did not forget the gravity that binds. As we ascend to space supreme through void and through which space... No up, no down, it makes us scream as Newton's laws we face. We were not bred for relative and lack of resistance. For space, this void in which we live, across such vast distance. Let's all give praise for flight assist that keeps our minds on track. Our spaceships can rotate and twist, yet we feel like we're back. On Earth, our home, our breeding ground, the world above which we flew. An aircraft past the speed of sound when science was still new. Our flight assist, it helps us feel that space is like the sky. This disconnect, it lets us deal and gives us wings to fly. Our thrusters turn and jet and spew, not prompted by our thought but by our invisible crew aligning as it ought. It brings us to a zero speed, relative, of course, when we just want rest or need to stand up to G-force. No need to track angles or lines if F.A. on you switch. Our ships are ours, our minds align, controlling yaw and pitch. Though some may mock it as a crutch, proclaim it less than fair. It simplifies our flight too much to make void feel like air. It seems to this commander that it benefits all flight, in exploration or combat to choose what feels just right. Embrace Newton or silence him, it's up to everyone. What matters is to find rhythm and make our own trail fun. So Flight Assist, thanks for the hand and keeping our minds sane, for helping launch and fly and land with our simplistic brain. We could do flight without assist and learn the truth of space, but some still want you to exist, and we too have our place. Thank you for listening to issue 34 of Sagittarius Eye. This issue featured articles written by Mac Winston, Osashes, Ariri, and Adernis, and was edited by Adernis, Lee Lockhart, Vertical Blank, and Mac Winston. This audio edition featured the voices of Wrangler Actual, Beetlejude, Spidey 002, Moogiver, and Poet Sparrow, and was edited by Wotherswoop. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. 
and Sagittarius Eye was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous, with the permission of Frontier Development's PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.